0: Aortic stenosis represents the second most common form of valvular heart disease.
1: When they crash, they can be incredibly hard to manage.
2: These strategies can actually make the patients worse.
3: Echocardiograms that most of us are doing will often miss aortic stenosis. In this specific patient population, we may end up doing
1: more harm than good. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. Really excited to kick off a series that I think that we will carry through 2021 with every few weeks, few episodes here and on a very challenging patient population and those are critically ill patients with structural heart disease. We're going to focus this podcast on the patients with aortic stenosis, probably one of the more challenging critically ill patients in our emergency department acute care settings. When they crash, they can be incredibly hard to manage. So I'm really looking forward to learning from this podcast. I'm going to turn things over to John momentarily to lead us through this discussion, but let me first bring everybody in and see how you all are doing this month. John, how goes it in Philly?
2: It's going well, Mike. 2021 is off to a good start, and we're doing well. Sounds good. Peter, how about New Orleans?
0: So doing well. You know, we're still battling with COVID, but positive light with vaccination programs up and running. We're excited about this.
1: Outstanding. And how about on our West Coast, Rob, San Francisco?
3: We're doing well overall, I would say. We are continuing a slow, sort of steady uptick in cases, but overall handling it very well outstanding.
1: Well, this is our second podcast here in 2021. Hopefully you all enjoyed listening to the literature review. Thanks to everybody who wrote in with feedback and some questions. Dialogue and discussion was great. Well, John, help us manage or walk us through how to manage the critically ill patient with aortic stenosis.
2: Absolutely, Mike. So this is based on a nice review article, Structural Heart Disease Emergencies by Genser and Journal of Intensive Care Medicine, published a few months ago now, but it's a great review. And we're going to focus in on one specific component, which is aortic stenosis, as you mentioned, Mike. Now, I think all of us take care of patients with acute decompensated heart failure, and we recognize that heart failure and cardiogenic shock are increasingly presenting to our EDs and requiring ICU admission. now. While cardiogenic shock is still most commonly caused by acute MIs or even progressive cardiomyopathies, structural diseases are an important subset of patients that still need to be on our clinical differential diagnosis. Today we're gonna talk about, like I said, aortic stenosis, but other structural diseases that are worth thinking about include aortic insufficiency or regurgitation, mitral stenosis, mitral regurgitation, and then we've talked about in the past left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and then obviously the septal defects or papillary muscle ruptures occasionally will come into the ED. Now, they typically present with severe shortness of breath and hypotension, and I think that we will often go down our standard medical management strategies, but sometimes these strategies can actually make the patients worse. So it's important to know about them, think about them, which is why we're going to dive into this topic more specifically today. Now, normally these patients who present with structural heart diseases, their disease progresses gradually over time but the physiology of the patients not unmasked in a severe way until they get sick from something else. So sepsis or volume overload, but then their management becomes more challenging. So I think this is a great review of this specific diagnosis and certainly can help at the bedside when you have a patient with this disease. So maybe we can start with Peter. Tell us a little about aortic stenosis in terms of what goes wrong and why these patients can get so sick. Great, John. And so I think it's important for us to
0: understand that aortic stenosis represents the second most common form of valvular heart disease. So this isn't some obscure disease. The likelihood is we're seeing these patients, and oftentimes we're not realizing it. From a pathophysiologic standpoint, severe aortic stenosis causes a fixed obstruction to the left ventricle ejection tract, right? And so it increases left ventricular afterload, and this leads to progressive diastolic dysfunction due to progressive left ventricular hypertrophy and eventual systolic dysfunction as the LV continues to dilate over time. The majority of patients with cardiogenic shock due to aortic stenosis have left ventricular dysfunction. And it can be challenging to differentiate hemodynamic compromise from severe aortic stenosis versus other really progressive cardiomyopathy. So it's a mixed bag and it's tough for us to say, oh, it's absolutely aortic stenosis. The most common etiologies of aortic stenosis, so what's leading to this disease, is really just calcification and degeneration over time. And as our populations in the emergency department presentations age, we're going to see more of this. There's also congenital bicuspid aortic valve, There's also degeneration of thrombus of previous prosthetic valves, so previous aortic surgery for the valve, and longstanding rheumatic heart disease. So we still see that in the community. The accuracy of our physical exam is sadly very limited. And patients may be tachycardic and have cool extremities from low cardiac output, so reduced cardiac output. And so pulmonary edema may or may not be present in these acute cardiac decompensations. We need to beware that the classic findings of a systolic ejection murmur may or may not be present depending on both the systemic hypotension and the volume that's crossing that stenotic valve, right? And so if the value is very low, we may not be hearing that as clearly. And sometimes when it's very high, we may not be hearing it as well. So we need to be aware of those things, that this classic finding, the systolic ejection murmur may not be present.
2: That's an awesome summary, Peter. I think brought up some really good pearls. First, the differential here that, you know, over time it just happens, but certainly bicuspid aortic valve previous prosthetic valve disease and progression of degeneration certainly needs to be on our differential as well as endocarditis, chronic endocarditis over time. But these patients are really tricky. And while our classic evaluation strategies may not be all that helpful, we do use ultrasound a lot. So Rob, are our bedside echocardiograms that we're doing in patients with shock, are they helpful?
3: Yeah, John. So Because of the limitations of physical exam in these patients, ultrasound or more specifically echocardiography remains the cornerstone of diagnosis of AS. However, the critical pearl here is that the limited point-of-care echocardiograms that most of us are doing in the ED will often miss aortic stenosis as a cause of cardiogenic shock in the ED. In general, our focused ultrasounds of the heart and the ED are generalized assessments of LV function and RV function. But you really need the critical valvular detail, the detail about the valve, to make this diagnosis. And specifically what you're looking for, and for that you need Doppler and color imaging to get this detail about the valve. And what you're looking for, again, the echocardio criteria for severe AS include an aortic valve area of less than one centimeter squared, a mean AV gradient of greater than 40 millimeters of mercury, an aortic valve maximum velocity of greater than or equal to four millimeters per second. But note, patients with longstanding AS can develop low flow states with severe AS as their left ventricular function decreases over time. And so in these patients, They may still have severe AAS with an aortic valve area of less than one, but they will not have the other criteria. They may not wind up having the other high gradient, high velocity criteria because their ventricles are so worn out, they can't generate adequate stroke volume. So the bottom line is that, yeah, echo is the cornerstone of diagnosis, but in general, our bedside echoes, unless you're doing detailed, Doppler and color imaging and looking at the valve areas, you may actually miss AS.
2: Wow, Rob. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, while I personally love doing ultrasound, you know, understanding that my limitations rather than doing comprehensive echocardiograms at the bedside, recognize this disease is really important because this is one area where basically our screening ultrasounds or echocardiograms that we're doing can kind of lead us in the wrong direction if we're not careful. So Mike, let's just say we have a patient that comes in who has known aortic stenosis. Maybe they're followed by cardiology at our local hospital. What are you thinking in terms of management strategies if they're coming in really sick and you're concerned that their aortic stenosis is sort of causing some of the issues that they're presenting with?
1: And this is the most challenging part. John, of this discussion, is actually managing the patient when they're crumping or crashing in front of you. I think the the pearl, if we have it, is we know that they have AS. So if we're able to access our EHR, or they know they have AS, or we were able to look at some records, echo, that provides us with a leg up and some insight. But in terms of patients presenting, and they're often going to present with acute decompensated heart failure or overt cardiogenic shock... It's going to be really tricky, and I think all of us have our standard go to, our algorithm that we manage patients with decompensated heart failure for. And in this specific patient population, we may end up doing more harm than good, and that's why it's incredibly important to dive deep into this patient population. As Peter mentioned, you've got that fixed obstruction, so that's severe aortic stenosis, which is causing the LV to see just a simple markedly increased LV afterload. And when patients get stressed, when they have when they're challenged by critical illness, they have that endogenous release of catecholamines that further exacerbates afterload. Blood pressure goes up and then they really get themselves into trouble. And The typical vasodilators that we would reach for in perhaps acute decompensated heart failure, nitroglycerin, high-dose nitroglycerin, or even nicardipine well, the response in these patients can be variable. And while it may assist in offloading that systemic vascular tone, it's not gonna do much for, or anything for, the fixed valvular, that decreased valve area, and the fixed stenosis that that LV is pushing against. So let's at least dive into a little bit and dichotomize the patients into those that are hypotensive versus those that are either normotensive or hypertensive. And in patients with known AS, they present with decompensated failure. They're normotensive or more often hypertensive due to that endogenous catecholamine reliefs. These patients we can treat similar to other heart failure patients that don't have critical AS. So we can provide diuretic therapy, although we want to be probably on the lower side of dosing of diuretics. And we can provide some conservative vasodilator therapy, but we need to be very, very careful and cautious with the utilization of those in this patient population. We're not going to start off with very high doses. This is going to be minimal, very gradual titration and very close attention to the patient. In terms of Non-invasive ventilation, we like that for many patients with acute decompensated heart failure, and it can certainly be tried in this patient population for respiratory symptoms. It may even provide a little bit of afterload reduction, as we've talked about in prior podcasts. Now, what about the hypotensive patients? So the decompensated heart failure, critical AS, they're now hypotensive from a systemic pressure standpoint. Well, with that low pressure, those patients are going to have decreased coronary perfusion pressure. So they'll get into this quick death spiral where there'll be poor coronary perfusion, there'll be increased myocardial ischemia, and overall worsen myocardial function as a result of that myocardial ischemia. And in these patients, they are often preload sensitive as a result of that diastolic dysfunction that occurs over time. So in this patient population, we're going to also be careful with administering some fluid boluses, not overt, one to two liters at a time. But these are smaller fluid aliquots, maybe 250 ml boluses. As you manage these patients may, in fact, improve their hemodynamics but you'll need to continue to pay very close attention to them. If they do continue to be hypotensive despite these smaller fluid boluses, then early initiation of vasopressors, in contrast to excessive volume resuscitation, really is the way to go to avoid pulmonary congestion and worsening pulmonary edema. And similar to other critical illness states, probably norepi is a very reasonable first choice, as it will increase afterload, help to increase perfusion, of those coronary arteries and then support the LV in patients who have reduced systolic function. Now, in those that you're doing your bedside echo, all the pearls that Rob just alluded to a short time ago, they've got a thick LV, it's hyperdynamic, well in those cases, perhaps a non-ionotropic pressor, so Peter eloquently puts it, alpha in a bottle, your phenylephrine may be tolerated in these particular patients. So. John, let me pause there, you know, in terms of talking about those that present either hypertensive or normotensive versus those that are hypotensive and see what additional considerations we have.
2: That's a great start to management. And I think the most important pearl that you highlighted was not to approach these patients like our standard acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema with that high dose nitroglycerin is that we can really get our patients in trouble here, but certainly considering some early fluids, which oftentimes I think we moved away from for most patients in cardiogenic shock might be beneficial. Now, let's just say you've taken your patient and you've started that initial resuscitation, but maybe they're still kind of on the border. They're still feeling a little bit cool in their extremities. They might still be having a little bit of respiratory distress from a poor perfusion standpoint. Peter, I guess, are there any other things that you might think about in terms of medical therapy or people to get involved with the patient early on?
0: Well, there are. There's a couple of things. You know, I think that you and Mike kind of mentioned how we're gingerly treating these patients with trials, both with fluids or a little bit of diuretics and a little bit of vasodilation in those patients that we're checking back with, with echo, with low flow aortic stenosis, so a low EF associated with this stenotic valve, an inotropic trial, a small trial with dobutamine can be a consideration in these patients. It's clearly preferred over epinephrine, which is going to be more of a mixed bag. We're just trying to give you a little bit of inotrope and some mild vasodilatation as the patient's systemic vascular resistance may already be high. And remember, it's tough to predict how dobutamine is going to respond, whether it's going to be more powerfully from an inotropic level or more powerfully from a vasodilatory effort, but it's worth a trial. And that's from an inotropic standpoint. The other thing we can do is one of the things that Mike has already mentioned, which is non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And again, this can be cautiously used. Remember that the effects that positive pressure ventilation has on the heart are twofold predominantly. And one is it can reduce preload, right? That positive pressure ventilation reduces blood returning back to the RV. And the other thing that it does do, it can function as somewhat of a left ventricular assist device, albeit a mild one, not super powerful, but a mild one to reduce work of the LV. So giving a trial of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation may be a benefit. And then again, when we're talking about these complex patients who typically have complex doctors follow them, you know, early consultation with both cardiology and cardiac surgery can be beneficial for these patients, especially if there's any need for advanced therapies such as intra-aortic balloon pumps or mechanical left ventricular assist devices, you want those folks on board early. And then just a reminder, surgical interventions such as balloon aortic valvuloplasty can be considered as a bridge for our most unstable patients who fail our medical therapies. But ultimately, transcatheter, TAVR, right, transcatheter aortic valve replacement or surgical aortic valve replacement is where it's headed. The clinical goal is often to stabilize these complex patients Prior to that surgical intervention, we know that the 30-day mortality rate of patients undergoing emergency transaortic valve replacement remains high. And they had a recently published large clinical trial found that the mortality was 8.7% in patients admitted with heart failure due to aortic stenosis and 33.3% in patients with aortic stenosis and shock. And just to frame that, the mortality rate of TAVR published in 2018 by the American College of Cardiology was under 5%. So that gives you some idea of how sick and how tricky manipulating these patients surgically can be.
2: Now, those are incredible points, Peter. Thanks for Kind of walking us through the last steps and sometimes managing these really tricky patients. So thinking about an inotrope, if they have that low flow AS is great. Certainly dobutamine may be preferred as opposed to epi. That's a great point. But as always, like you said, being cautious about its use and the effects on our patients sometimes doesn't always act as we hope. So being careful about more vasodilatation and hypotension is got to be on our radar. So I think in summary, aortic stenosis is a fixed cause of LV afterload that causes our patients to respond poorly to these standard treatments that we're used to doing for our patients who come into the ED kind of crashing in acute heart failure. Beware of the pitfalls, or at least the limitations of our basic echocardiograms that we're doing in the ED. You know, we don't want to miss this just because everything looks okay. There's specific echo criteria that need to be measured uh, in order to make this diagnosis. So not something that we might be diagnosing in the ED, but getting by history instead. And being mindful of the resuscitation interventions that we're doing and understanding that what we usually do for patients in cardiogenic shock might not work for this population is important. So with that, Mike, I'll kick it back to you. Any other thoughts or any other thoughts from the group? Peter, Rob?
3: Yeah, I wanted to emphasize a point about intubating these patients. So your instinct in these patients who are in severe shock, and maybe in a little bit of respiratory distress as well. Your instinct would be to move toward intubating these people to decrease their work of breathing and to kind of help you overall manage the patient. You have to, as we indicated, you probably should favor non-invasive ventilation in these patients, and you have to resist that instinct to right away go to intubation in these people. When you vasodilate them, and take away their adrenergic response with sedatives and then you put them on positive pressure ventilation. Because they have that fixed obstruction, they may arrest. Many of them will arrest, just like the patient who has a fixed obstruction with massive pulmonary embolism. It's the same kind of deal where you take away their inherent catecholamines and you sedate them and you vasodilate them, they will arrest.
1: That's a great point, Rob, and I think a great place to kind of bring this discussion together on a really challenging patient population. Whenever I see these patients in the ED, it gives me pause. I get a little diaphoretic and I really have to think carefully and purposefully about their management. Not that we wouldn't for any critically ill patient, but especially these patients with critical and severe aortic stenosis. Probably, as I mentioned early in the discussion, one of the sicker patient populations and more difficult to manage, especially when they get into trouble. And guys, you've provided some outstanding pearls along with a few pitfalls along the way in terms of the management of these patients. And hopefully you all listening to to this, got some pearls out of it. Please let us know if you have any questions and follow up to this discussion. And John, with this part one on aortic stenosis, I'm already looking forward to the next time we circle around in this series and maybe talk about either aortic insufficiency, some mitral stenosis, mitral regurge. Looking forward to what you have for us in the next iteration of this podcast. So with that, let's bring this discussion to a close. So thankful that you could join us for this podcast. And we're really looking forward to speaking to you next time here on CCPEM. Stay safe, stay well. Wishing you all a continued great start to your 2021. We will talk to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.